You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Forefront. It is good to see your faces in person, and hopefully many of you who are watching online, I get to meet you in virtual spaces or in person at some point. Um, so this morning, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about shame, which I actually know a fair amount of because I was a menace of a child. I know when you look at me, you think, oh, he seems like such a goody two-shoes. There's no way he was a menace, but I was. Um, and they didn't know how to quite tame me, so they sort of tame me and shame me into shape. And you'll see this picture of this box. Uh, it was a six-by-six six wooden box in my third-grade classroom. Now, you'll notice there is no roof on top of it. Maybe you can see that or you can't see that. And uh, I, I couldn't quite find, you know, a picture of it exactly like it was when I was a kid. It was not cell phone pictures back then, so I don't, had to do some research and find this photo. My room didn't have a door on it. Uh, so no door and no roof, but the other, all the other walls were still there. And whenever I would sort of step out of place, the teacher would say, Josh, go to the box. And so I would find my way to the box, and I would spend a couple hours in there, probably every week, trying to sort of tame me and shame me into shape. Now, as I did some research, I began to find that I was not the only one who spent time in this box. Uh, This was actually a disciplinary practice that was used in lots of schools, particularly in Iowa. And Iowa did this study the State Department of Education, because this box was being misused. And so they wanted to find out how it was being misused. And out of 455 incidents from 2015 in December, 2016 in December, there were 4% of the incidences when people were sent to the box, they determined that they were for minor infractions. Minor infractions, things like the misuse of like foul language or an attitude or having stepped out of line. All the reasons, many of the reasons why I had spent time in the box also. Now, this box, uh, in many ways, um, was used to sort of separate me from everyone else, from the class. It was used to remind me that I was no longer a part of the crowd, that I had sort of lost my privileges. It was to tame me from distracting others and distracting myself. It was to sort of mold me and shape me into how they wanted me to be. Reality was, was that it never worked. I spent time in that box every single week of third grade because it just didn't tame me enough. Instead, I thought, how can I make this another piece of my act as the class clown? So there was a desk inside of the the box. Remember, there's an open top so that I could hear the teacher giving instruction, but I wouldn't be able to see anything written on the board. And so I would climb up on top of this desk and I would just be able to barely peek my little head at some point or my feet or my fingers over the top just enough to get a few giggles and laughs out of the kids who were watching at the box for when Josh would appear like a puppeteer. This box that was meant to shame me uh, really just turned into a box of silliness for me. No matter how silly I got, though, in that box, it could not cover my shame. I would make everyone laugh because I thought, well, maybe if they laugh, I won't be embarrassed. 
the reality was, was I was embarrassed. And that's why I wanted to make people laugh. But even more than that, when I would sit inside of that box, this is what I would do. I would replay this in my mind. Josh, you're not going to end up in this box again. You're going to be better. You're going to be good. You're not going to talk to your other classmates next time you come out of this box. You, you're not going to throw spitballs at them. You're, you're not going to tell sexual jokes on the playground and end up in this box again. You're not going to cheat on your multiplication test and end up in this box again. You are going to be good. You are going to be better. I would tell myself this on repeat, and then every time I'd end up in the box, I would shame myself more and more. How did you end up here again? The reality was, through plenty of counseling and psychoanalyzation, I'm able to look back now and realize that this elementary kid was just desperately trying to get some attention. This elementary school kid just really wanted to be cool and to fit in. He wanted to be unique, and I had found the way to do it. And when I became a Christian when I was 12, I found that I could do good things and get just as much attention, and everything shifted for me. But reality was, was that box, as much as they tried, it never really dealt with the problem. As much as they tried to shame and tame me, it never dealt with the inner issues. In fact, it only escalated them. In a similar way in our text today, Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 find themselves in the Garden of Eden with clear instructions on about how they're to behave and how they're to act and not act. They have sort of this rule that's been given to them, right? They don't eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Avoid that. Don't go there. Don't do that. You, everything else, free reign. You can do what you want, but don't do this one thing. But, but Eve is tempted by this idea that perhaps God is holding out on her. That if perhaps she eats from this tree, maybe she'll see herself and see the world the way God sees it. That there's some type of knowledge or wisdom or something out there that she is just not woke to. And so all of a sudden, she's like, well, maybe if I do this, maybe if I do this, it'll open up a door to something that I've never known. Unfortunately, upon eating this fruit, she no longer truly sees herself the way God sees her. It's a trick. She now sees herself in a way that is filled with shame and fear. The thing that God was trying to avoid from her seeing all along. And so in Genesis chapter 3, this is the very familiar story you probably know from children's church or Sunday school, or your parents telling you it, or just in the world in general, the story in the beginning of creation of Adam and Eve. It begins, we'll pick up in the story in chapter 3 verse 7. It says, At that moment their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breeze were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees. The Lord said, Where are you? He asked. I heard you walking, so I hid. I was afraid. Another translation says, I was ashamed because I was naked. Verse 11, Who told you you were naked? The Lord asked them. Amidst her and Adam's mistake, they realize for the very first time that they are naked, that they are uncomfortable, that they are filled with shame. Their humanity, though, it never changed, did it? But their awareness of how they viewed their humanity, it did. Their humanity turned towards shame. For the first time, they look at themselves and they see themselves not the way God sees them. They see themselves as people filled with, with shame and fear. And so what do they do? 
they pick up a hobby that I would love to learn, which was that they sewed like leaves together. How did they do that? I'm not really sure, but they figured something out. It's always depicted in the art covering the spots, right? Like they, 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 they somehow wove and shaped something together to help sort of cover their shame. Nadia Boltzweber, who is a Lutheran theologian and pastor and author and speaker, many of you may know her. She writes some great books. One of her books that I love most is called Shameless. Um, and it's talking about breaking free from sexual shame that many of us experience or were taught, who may have grown up in some more fundamentalist circles. Excellent book. Highly recommend it. And it really helped me reconstruct my views on a healthy sexuality instead of just throwing it all out or being extreme and restrictive. And so Nadia says this in her book. She says, Who told Adam and Eve that they are naked? Shame has its origin somewhere, and it isn't God, she says. Who told them they were naked? My money, it's on the snake. You see, shame doesn't come from God's voice. It comes from people who claim to be speaking for God, which is exactly what the snake did with Adam and Eve as he tempted them to speak, to, to eat. What I love about this text is that, that Adam and Eve, they are the ones that estrange themselves from God in the story, right? Like they're the ones that they know God's coming for the evening stroll, and so they're like, he's coming. She's going to be here any minute. And so they hide behind this bush or behind this tree of some sort. And as God comes through, he's like, where are you at? It's interesting. Growing up, I was always told that God couldn't handle my sin, that there was a chasm between God and me, that I had made sinful choices and mistakes. And until I made those right or asked for God's forgiveness or, or stopped sinning with the same thing over and over again, that there would always be a chasm and God could not even turn God's face towards me. I'll tell you how much shame that filled me with on a repeat cycle. I was told that we could overcome sin, but yet, you know, it was okay if you did, you know, different sins like one or two times, but the same one over and over again, too far. God couldn't handle that. But yet in this text, when Adam and Eve seem to make a mistake, it is not God who hides behind a bush. It is not God who turns God's face up in heaven and says, I'm not coming down tonight to dine. It is Adam and Eve who estrange themselves from God and hide behind a bush. They are the ones that think there is no way that we could ever be deserving of God's love. There's no way we could be lucky to be loved. There's no way. But God comes to them in the midst of their shame, in the midst of their covering, in the midst of their hiding in a box or behind a tree, and God refuses to allow them to live in that place. God calls them out from behind that place of shame and calls them into something better and different. What I love at the end of this passage in verse 3 is that, you know, they've woven whatever they've woven to cover their parts, but then God kills an animal. For those of you vegetarians, I'm really sorry for this moment. God kills an animal and uses the skin of that to make them clothes, to cover their nakedness, the passage says. And it did not, he did not have to cover their nakedness because she was uncomfortable with their nakedness in any way. God covered it because they were uncomfortable with their own shame and God wanted to cover their shame so that they would feel at peace and hopeful and holy and clean and pure in God's presence. God never had to cover their nakedness because God was uncomfortable. I mean, God made them that way. God made them also in the frailty of being able to make choices, good and bad. God was never shocked, never surprised, never turned off, never would choose to shame them. They are the ones that went through an internal battle. They are the ones that had to go on a long journey to see themselves again the way God always saw them. 
but the way that they stopped seeing themselves. I can remember when I was pastoring a church in Madisonville, Kentucky. It was right after I had finished my degree at Moody Bible Institute. It was the first church I served as a, as a senior pastor. And I remember um, this deep sense of how much I didn't deserve that job because I was gay but how I couldn't understand why God had given me this door and this opportunity. And I remember there were Sundays during my last year on staff at that church when I was really wrestling with my sexuality. I had been celibate for five years, and I had started to change my views and my thoughts, and I began to think, I don't actually think that this is a sin. I'm just afraid of the people that do. And so I started going on dates secretly and acting out and acting out. You know, that's how I would have characterized it at that time. And as I was experiencing that, I would then get up on a Sunday and I would preach. And I would be filled with guilt and shame because I thought if people knew what I was doing, I would be just chased out of this town quicker than I could take a deep breath and say amen. And I remember many of my sermons, I would say things like, and I was reminded by a friend this week who reminded me that I used to say this, you deserve nothing but hell. I used to say that in my sermons. You deserve nothing but hell. But God has given you so much more. But that's all you deserve, really. And that was a narrative that I had told myself and had been told for so many years and believed in my core. So on a Sunday morning when I would get up and I would facilitate communion every Sunday in this Christian church, I would get to the point where I would stop receiving communion. I would serve it to people and I wouldn't take it. And no one noticed or ever said anything that I never partaked. Because I was afraid that if I took the body of Christ and the blood of Christ while going on dates and such with men, that I would eat and drink death upon myself in God's wrath and punishment. I'd gotten to the place where I was so filled and crippled with shame that I could hardly preach on a Sunday and my assistant at the time would would have to text me in the morning and ask, are you awake, are you ready, are you coming today across the parking lot? Because she knew how crippled I was living in these two worlds. Richard, Father Richard War, who's a Franciscan priest and author, has a large voice into the progressive Christian world that's being shaped for the future now. He, he speaks these words about this idea that we deserve nothing but hell or this idea of original sin, that, that we were born sinful and evil and we are in need of God's grace and forgiveness, a message many of us probably grew up with. But this is what he says. He, he gives us some historical perspective, which is fascinating to think about. He says, The truth of our original goodness was sadly complicated when the concept of original sin entered the Christian mind. This idea was put forth by Augustine in the 5th century, but never mentioned in the Bible. This idea that, that we are, uh, that we some, in some way were born sinful, evil beings from whom God had to turn God's back on. This idea actually is not an idea that was presented until the 5th century. Our Jewish brothers and sisters who we adopt the Hebrew Bible from, who Adam and Eve and that story come from, they don't believe in original sin. That was an idea that was adopted by Christians in the 5th century trying to make sense of the death and resurrection of Christ. But yet, it is so core to so many of our beings now. So many of you in this room, I, I know as I talk about shame, you, you probably have your own bush that you have hidden behind or you're hiding behind this morning. You maybe have your own box that you have placed yourself in or someone else has placed you in. And maybe your box has a door on it and a lock and you just really have no idea how to get out. 
Maybe you're experiencing shame this morning around your sexuality or, or your mental health or your race or your gender identity or maybe your relationship status or, or history. Maybe you experience shame over who you love or failures that you've made or your body or your health. Maybe you experience shame over different varying learning abilities or a mistake you made at work or a, a past decision or an addiction. I, I don't know what your shame is, but I bet you know. And I bet you know what bush you hide in and what door and box locks behind you. But Brene Brown, who is an author and therapist who is like the expert, right, on shame. We all, give me an amen if you know Brene. All right, I knew you knew Brene. Feel free to comment amen online if you know Brene too. Or, or you could like tag Brene and she would like, oh, that's this church. They're talking about me, you know. <laughs> Feel free. Just a little shout out. Do that. If you're, if you're bored at home right now. She, she gives this advice when she talks about shame and how to kind of combat it, right? Because we all have it. How do we deal with it? That's the question as we walk away this morning. Well, she says this. She says, shame can't survive being met with empathy. And so do these three things, she says, to move through shame. Notice how she says to move through shame instead of overcome it. Shame is a process that we're continually moving through. Just like forgiveness is a process we often have to continually move through like a cycle. It's not just a simple overcoming. It's a constant engagement of it. How do you move through shame? She gives us two steps, three steps. She says, talk to yourself the way you would someone you love. Number two, reach out to someone you trust. And number three, tell your story. Tell your story. She quotes on to say this, guilt is an awareness that we have done something bad and shame is a belief that we are bad. You see the difference there? It's okay to hold the tension. I made a mistake. I hurt someone. I caused pain to God's creation or God's created. That is a healthy conviction. Guilt is good. It leads us to reconciliation and wholeness and healing. But where guilt turns into something bad is when it becomes shame, when we go, I am bad because I did this. I am bad because I struggle with this. I am bad because I made this mistake. I am inherently bad. Something is wrong with me, and it can't be made right. When we shame ourselves to that point, that's when we go so inward that we have no idea how to come back out. And so how does Brene encourage us to, to navigate out of that? It's to, like she said, talk to yourself the way you would someone you love. Reach out to someone you trust and tell your story. When I, um, you know, as a gay man, I've experienced plenty of shame throughout my life in regards to my sexuality. And one of the most beautiful things and the gifts to me within the queer community is Pride Month. Because it's a moment for me to go inward and be able to say, all my life I've been told, here's something you should be ashamed of. But this month, I am reminded this is something to be proud of. Give me an amen if you know or you have been through that. Yeah. Pride Month is, 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 it exists because there is a group of people who have been told historically, you should be ashamed of yourself. It is an invitation to truly take pride in our created identity. But reality is, is, is uh, even though, you know, I've been out for, for six years now, and I participated in plenty of, plenty of prides, at the end of the day, I still deal with internalized homophobia. I still deal with shame. When I bought my first home in Peoria, which is where I moved here from, Peoria, Illinois, I always wanted to hang a rainbow flag outside my house. Always wanted it. And so I ordered the rainbow flag, and I, ordered, and I ordered the long stick. I was just, like, overjoyed and excited for this moment. But you know how long that rainbow flag and stick stayed in my, in my garage till I finally put it out? Too long. 
Because I was afraid to put it out because I was afraid what my neighbors would say or think of me, especially if that was their first impression. And so for too long, it sat in my garage, and then finally I was talking to one of my friends about it, and I said, I'm feeling shame and nervousness about putting this flag out. And she said, do not let that shame fester. You put that flag out, and that shame will will deteriorate. I did what Brene said. I, I, I chose to give myself the same advice that I would give someone else, I confessed what I was feeling to another person who could speak truth to me, but I told my story to them. And they gave me the courage to hang that flag with pride. And I can't tell you how many times people have mentioned that flag and what it means to them. I'm on a main street through Peoria, and they drive by and see it. And people say, I've seen that flag, and I know it's your house. (laughs) Shame to overcome. When I was interviewing here at this church, you know, a a classic question whenever you're interviewing a, a church is, is what's your weakness or what's your place of growth? And so long before I started my search for work, I you know, was interviewing at, at different churches in different spaces and places, and I knew that probably would be a go-to question somebody would ask me. And so I was ready. Okay, what will I answer when somebody asks that? A place of growth or weakness? And for me, it's my lack of self, self, self-empathy. I am, so, I am so gracious and patient and forgiving and, and understanding and empathetic and compassionate towards others. But if I make a mistake, if I hurt somebody, if I misstep, if I misspeak, I will beat myself up. I will replay that shame narrative over and over and over again. Instead of just being like, okay, what can I do to make that thing right? I'm a human. I made a mistake. I'm moving forward. People, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, two threes and four personality types, they usually go to, hey, hey Mac, I see you. I'm a three. You're a f- two. Yep. Two, nine. Okay, we'll talk about you another week. Um, those people, their, their core emotion when they're going to a, a bad place can be shame. Can be shame and how they navigate that. And so to know those things about myself, to be able to be aware of that, that helps me to extend my self-compassion and empathy when I'm struggling with it. So one of the, my favorite stories when I think about this idea of shame is the story of the prodigal son. The Adam and Eve is a great story as it, as it captures this beautiful image of, of a God who moves towards them when they move away and a God who desires to cover the shame, not for God's sake, but for their sake. But more than that, when Jesus is asked to tell a story about what would symbolize the love of God, he tells this prodigal son story, this parable. The story of a young boy who takes his father's early inheritance and wealth and he goes and squanders it on wild living and craziness to the point where he finds himself living amongst the pigs and eating what they eat. And so he decides, I've wasted all this money I'm literally starving to death. I'm just going to go home, and I'm going to ask Dad to take me back, not as a son, because there's no way I ever be deserved to be called his son again. But I'll just ask him to hire me as a hired hand. And so with this shame that he carries upon his shoulders, he walks home on this long journey, and his father meets him, goes and walks to him, doesn't wait for him to come even to the front porch, goes and runs and meets him in this place of shame, throws his arms around his son before he ever even utters the words, I'm sorry or I made a mistake, and lavishes love and mercy and forgiveness on him and loves him in a way he could have never loved himself. He loves him in a way that he desires for him to love himself again. His father loves him the way that he wants him to love himself like he once did. This father throws a party for him and lavishes him with love and power. 
with mercy unmatched and love overwhelming, he shows his son that this idea that he is no longer deserving of his father's love because of his mistakes is not going to fly in this house. He reminds him that his love as a son was never because he had made all the right choices, because his older brother is ticked when he gets home and finds out that a party's been thrown for him because he's like, well, I did everything right. I'm the one who should get praised. And all this extra stuff that you're giving him, that's my inheritance. He got his inheritance. I deserve that. I've worked for that. And the story I believe that is told here to the religious leaders, this story is told, is to remind us as children of the light that it is not because we work so hard and we do so much that we experience the love of God or it is because we've made so many mistakes that we could not experience the love of God. It is simply because we are children of God. It's not because we're lucky that we receive and experience the love of God. The story that Jesus chooses to remind us of that is a story of unmerited love from a man who comes home filled with shame. So let's remember this morning that when Jesus still tells a story to depict the love of God, he chooses a story where a man who makes a poor decision and his parents move towards him with empathy and not shame and isolation. So let us come out from behind the bush. Let us come out of the box. Let us come back from our wayward ways, distancing ourselves from our creator who we think there's no way could love us. Let us take a stroll in the garden. Let us let him remind us of her overwhelming love for us, that they always and forever will capture us with their love. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.